Hello, hello. I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome back Julia Shecky, who is a psychedelic assistant therapist. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing someone in a helping profession, asking questions that you want the answers to, and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board-certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and my new walking speed is the monster from It Follows. So I apologize to everyone I'm walking behind now. I am, it is me, Joanna, not a demon, so... And just because she's dressed up like a person from your past who scares you <laughs> doesn't mean she is the monster from It Follows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Me Jersey, too. Oh my Southern New Jersey. I mean, the Pennsylvania part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. South Jersey. <laughs> I am a cishet white woman and my pronouns are she, her, and I... Oh, boy. Don't have a fun fact for today. And I, nope, keep that in. And I, um, I walk fast and, uh, oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, and I am mapping out a vegetable garden with my, uh, rental, fuck. And I am mapping out a vegetable garden with my neighbor currently. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my goodness, Joanna, how are you doing? That's I'm good. Uh, I walk very slowly now, and it just hit me like... the other day when I was walking. I was like, "Oh, I'm walking the speed of the it follows." Because, like, you know, when you're looking for the it follows mm-hmm. monster, it's walking kind of slow, um, and like very purposefully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's me. I'm very pur- purposely walking forward because, like, I have to concentrate all my energy on moving forward. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's where I'm at. Yeah. I, if you want to hear more about the, it follows monster, listen to our spooky series. I believe it's number one. It follows. Yeah. We love that movie. I don't know. It's one of them. Yeah. I think it's actually the third one. Yeah. Okay. So we, we reviewed Midsommar, which I still have nightmares about. We, and we watched also the conjuring of course, and we watched it follows and reviewed them last October. So check them out with a check mark. Uh, check. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. Check, check. I'm excited to do some vegetable gardening. I'm what excited to, you know. are you going to garden? Um, so we're currently digging up a rose bush <laughs> with permission from our landlord to plant um, cucumbers on a trellis. And then I'm Ooh. also, I converted the compost buckets, as mentioned last week, into <laughs> into spray painted green buckets that I could also plant vegetables in them. So we're going to do some tomatoes some peppers and you know the the regulars i'm i'm gonna try to keep it calm because this is my first year doing vegetable gardening and it's very intimidating and as previously mentioned 
when I when I do things like this, if I share a yard with someone, I can feel very easily discouraged by their comments. <laughs> so, mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I won't get too far into that in case I'm ever big enough where all my neighbors are listening to my show. Ooh, um, yeah, but you know, yeah. hey, I, I would know. get like too excited about gardening and be like, I'm gonna garden all of it. And then be like, wait a minute, I live in a dorm room and I cannot grow lettuce on the ground in here because that's something that I did. Um, yeah, after I mean, going I to my first thought about <laughs> Philly uh, flower show, I was like, I can do this in my dorm. Oh my God, it's, it's hard not to. Once I figured out how to propagate succulents, you know, I have 30 houseplants. Like I'm not saying like the number 30 because that's a high number. Like you walk through my home and there's 30 houseplants and it's great. Um, and it's wonderful. So I want to push that to the outside. Um, it does bring a lot of nets. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, succulents are great. They're the only thing I can really count on or that Mm -hmm. the only thing that can count on me. Um, I, uh, for my wedding, I had a bunch of succulents and I was able to like replant and propagate all of those, which was really exciting. Nice. Yeah. I love, I love like an accidental propagation. We have one plant now called, it's called the mother of millions. (laughs) Cause it just like shoots its seeds out. Um, and yeah, so I've propagated a couple of those. Also, I, I, don't, I know this is like riveting, but the golden pathos <laughs> that I have hanging in my office, it had children, which I planted last spring. And now those children have also had children. So I have <laughs> generations of golden pathos throughout our home. Yeah. It's exciting. I've got, I've got one plant fast. that has two children now and I really have to move them because they're in a very tiny pot. Um, but I'm afraid of destroying them because that seems to be what I do. Uh, Repotting is a necessary evil. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. The avocado. This is the last thing. (laughs) (laughs) This is like talking about my kids though. So the avocado (laughs) tree that I started growing from a seed in the beginning of the pandemic, Joanne, I talked to you about it all the time. It actually wasn't doing well in the beginning of the year. And I thought it was dying. All the leaves fell off. And new leaves have just sprouted. Oh my gosh. So I think it's going to be okay. <laughs> I was very, um, I was very upset about it and feeling very disappointed. Also because I had spent $50 on a terracotta pot and then it immediately yeah. looked like it was dying. Sorry. Yeah. Maybe we'll do a whole episode about plants that no one has to listen to. <laughs> yeah. I have one more plant story if we want about me growing. Tell a plant, a plant story. Um, mm-hmm. I think I got very upset. I was just, you know, um, a sophomore in college and um I was like I need something so I ordered a lime tree off of Amazon and I brought it home with me like in a bag in my backpack on the train like from DC to Connecticut yeah I felt like I was breaking the law somehow um but that that lime tree it was a pygmy lime tree and I called it um or a lemon I don't really know uh, I called it George Clooney because George Clooney's father taught at my school. And I thought that if I ever had the chance to talk to him, I could be like, oh, I have a tree named after your son. And then that is how I would get to meet George Clooney. This is a true story. Um, there's been two George Clooney's. They have fruited because but the problem is when you have a, a like a citrus tree inside, you have to pollinate it yourself, which I did. Mm. And um, that's my story of growing a lemon lime tree in my dorm room. I always love the very empathetic nods we get from our yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like of course that like, makes sense. We're Joanna. just talking Thank like you. like loony 
reasons so yeah that like and that was my legitimate i was like if i get to meet nick clooney i think that's his name i will say hey i would treat him after your son and then that's how i'll get to meet george clooney like why not i'm getting a lot of no's um yeah i mean i'm I'm cool and george clooney There's a lot of people in front of him on the list, but yeah, we're I talking mean, he's, he's not 10 like years ago. First, he's not like my first right? on my list. And we're talking 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, right. And also he he was the first on your list of people who had a child at your college. Yes. Yeah. He The, the access. <laughs> I had one one less you know, barrier to access. Man, what a story. What a. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good stuff. All right. Uh, how are your floors? <laughs> Pretty clean. <laughs> nice i'll yeah, try to same. think of more george clooney today. the plant story <laughs> that sounds nice i'd like that i yeah yeah i get that for a while he was in my parents basement under a grill oh we're going <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right now even <laughs> right now okay i think that's it i think that's it um, <laughs> yeah i'm afraid i'm gonna get pranked nope it's over <laughs> I stay tuned for our lesson after the break <laughs> And now it's time for our lesson. Sit down, tray tables up, get at your desk, Ooh. get your chalkboard ready. The lesson is compiled facts describing history and or current events, good and bad, in order to in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sole source for today is a brief history of psychedelic psychiatry by Mo Gustandi. Trigger warning, brief mention of lobotomies and ECT. ECT, while it is a perfectly ethical treatment now, not always was. Um, Moving on to the history of psychedelic psychiatry. On the 5th of May in 1953, the the novelist Aldous Huxley of Brave New World fame dissolved four-tenths of a gram of mescaline, which is a psychedelic, into a glass of water, drank it, then sat back and waited for the drug to take effect. Huxley took the drug in his California home under the direct supervision of psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond, to whom Huxley had volunteered himself as, quote, a living and eager guinea pig, end quote. Osmond was one of a small group of psychiatrists who pioneered the use of LSD as a treatment for alcoholism and various mental disorders in the 1950s. He coined the term, Joanna, psychedelic, meaning quote, mind manifesting, end quote. And although his research into the therapeutic potential of LSD produced promising initial results, it was halted during the 1960s for social and political reasons. It's actually something that we were seeing during the opioid epidemic. Born in Surrey in 1917, Osmond studied medicine at Guy's Hospital in London. He served in the Navy as a ship psychiatrist during World War II and afterwards worked in the psychiatric unit at St. George's Hospital, London, where he became a senior registrar. While at St. George's, Osmond and his colleague John Smithies learned about Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD and the Sandoz Pharmaceutical Company in Basel, Switzerland. 
That could be Basil. If you're in Switzerland, shoot us an email. Osmond and Smithies or Smithies started their own Osmond and Smithies started their own investigation into the properties of hallucinogens and observed that mescaline produced effects similar to the symptoms of schizophrenia. And that is and that its chemical structure was very similar to that of the hormone and neurotransmitter adrenaline. And for folks that work with trauma, we are working with adrenaline a lot. Mm-hmm. This led them to theorize that schizophrenia was caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, which we hear daily. But these ideas were not favorably received by their colleagues. So name one line that you hear more often than yeah. chemical imbalance. Mine is the body keeps the score. <laughs> yeah. Things I hear every day. All right. In 1951, Osmond took a post took a post as deputy director of psychiatry at the Weyburn Mental Hospital in Saskatchewan, Canada, and moved there with his family. Within a year, he began collaborating on experiments using LSD with Abram Hoffer. Osmond tried LSD himself and concluded that the drug could produce profound changes in consciousness. Osmond and Hoffer also recruited volunteers to take LSD and theorized that the drug was capable of including a new level of self-awareness which may have enormous therapeutic potential. Great. In uh, 1953, they began giving LSD to their patients, starting with some of those diagnosed with alcoholism. Their first study involved two alcoholic patients, each of whom was given a single 200 microgram dose of the drug. One of them stopped drinking immediately after the experiment, whereas the other stopped six months later. Several years later, a colleague named Colin Smith treated another 24 patients with LSD and subsequently reported that 12 of them had either, quote, improved or, quote, well improved as a result of the treatment. Smith wrote in 1958, the impression was gained that the drugs are a useful adjunct to psychotherapy. The results appear sufficiently encouraging to merit more extensive and preferably controlled trials. Osmond and Hoffer were encouraged and continued to administer the drug to alcoholics. By the end of the 1960s, they had treated approximately 2,000 patients. They claimed that the Saskatchewan trials consistently produced the same results. Their studies seemed to show that a single large dose of LSD could be an effective treatment for alcoholism and reported that between 40 and 45% of their patients given the drug had not experienced a relapse after a year. Around the same time, another psychiatrist was carrying out similar experience Around the same time, another psychiatrist was carrying out similar experiments in the UK. Ronald Sanderson was born in Shetland and won a scholarship to study medicine at King's College Hospital. In 1951, he accepted a consultant's post at Powick Hospital near near Worcester, but upon taking the position, found the establishment to be overcrowded and decrepit, with patients being subject to electroshock treatments and lobotomies. Sanderson introduced the use of psychotherapy and other forms of therapy involving art and music. Woo! In 1952, he visited Switzerland, where he also met Albert Hoffman and was introduced to the idea of using LSD in the clinic. He returned to the UK with with 100 vials of the drug, which Sandoz had by then named Delicid. After discussing the matter with his colleagues, began treating patients with it in addition to psychotherapy towards the end of 1952. Sanderson and his colleagues obtained results similar to those of the Saskatchewan trials. In 1954, they reported that, quote, as a result of LSD therapy, 14 patients recovered, 
One was greatly improved after three treatments, six were moderately improved after an average of two treatments, and two had not improved on an average of five treatments, end quote. These results drew great interest from the international mass media, and as a result, Sanderson opened the world's first purpose-built LSD therapy clinic the following year. The unit, located on the grounds of Powick Hospital, accommodated up to five patients who could receive LSD therapy simultaneously. Each was given their own room, equipped with a chair, sofa, and a record player. It's <laughs> awesome. Patient, patients also came together to discuss their experiences in daily group sessions. This backfired, however. In 2002, the National Health Service agreed to pay a total of £195,000 in an, in an out-of-court settlement to 43 of Sanderson's former patients. I don't have any more details on that. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Canada, Osmond's form of LSD therapy was endorsed by the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and the director of Saskatchewan's Bureau of Alcoholism. And Joanna, I don't think that's the same co-founder of AA that was in that cult book that you gave me for my birthday. I think okay. <laughs> it might've been for a different Different, different founder. Okay. Uh, LSD therapy peaked. What's that called? American cult, by the way. Check that book American out, cults. folks. Yeah. American cults. Yeah. All right. LSD therapy peaked in the late 1950s and early 1960s and was widely considered to be the next big thing in psychiatry, which could supersede electroconvulsive therapy and psychosurgery, which I think is a nice way to say lobotomy. I think. At one point, it was popular among Hollywood superstars. At one point, it was popular among Hollywood superstars such as Cary Grant. Two forms of LSD therapy. Sorry. Very handsome. <laughs> Two forms of LSD therapy became popular. One called psychedelic therapy was based on Osmond and Hoffer's work and involved a large dose of LSD alongside psychotherapy. Osmond and Hoffer believed that hallucinogens are beneficial therapeutically because of their ability to make patients view their condition from a fresh perspective. Yeah, love that. Mm. The other called um, psychol psycholytic psycholytic? Give me psycholytic. Fuck. The other called psycholytic therapy was based on Sanderson's regime of several smaller doses increasing in size as an addition to psychoanalysis. Sanderson's clinical observations led him to believe that LSD can aid psychotherapy by inducing dreamlike hallucinations that reflected the patient's unconscious mind and enabling them to relive long-lost memories. Between the years 1950 and 1965, some 40,000 patients had been prescribed one form of LSD therapy or another as treatment for neuroses, schizophrenia, and psychopathy. It was even prescribed to children with autism. Research into the potential therapeutic effects of LSD and other hallucinogens had produced over a thousand scientific papers and six international conferences. But many of these early studies weren't particularly robust, lacking control groups, for example, and likely suffered from what researchers called publication bias, whereby negative data are excluded from the final analyses. Even so, the preliminary findings seemed to warrant further research into the therapeutic benefits of hallucinogenic drugs. The research soon came to an abrupt halt, however, mostly for political reasons. In 1962, the U.S. Congress passed new drug safety regulations and the Food and Drug Administration designated LSD as an experimental drug and began to clamp down on research into its effects. The following year, LSD hit the streets in the form of liquid soaked onto sugar cubes and its popularity grew quickly and the hippie counterculture was in full swing by the summer of 1967. During this period, LSD increasingly came to be viewed as a drug of abuse. 
It also became closely associated with student, student riots, anti-war demonstrations, and thus was outlawed in the U.S. by the U.S. federal government in 1968. Osmond and Hoffer responded to this new legislation by commenting that, quote, it seems apt that there is now an outburst of resentment against some chemicals which can rapidly throw a man either into heaven or hell, end quote. They also criticized legislation, comparing it to the Victorian reaction to anesthetics. In the 1990s, the 1990s saw a renewed interest in the neurobiological effects and therapeutic potential of hallucinogenic drugs. We now understand how many of them work at the molecular level, and several research groups have been performing brain scanning experiments to try and learn more about how they exert their effects. A number of clinical trials are also being performed to test the potential benefits of psilocybin, ketamine, and MDMA to patients with depression and various other mood disorders. Their use is still severely restricted, however, leading some to criticize drug laws, which they argue are preventing vital research. Huxley believed that hallucinogenic drugs produce their character characteristic effects by opening a reducing valve in the brain that normally limits our perception and some of the new research seems to confirm this. In 1963, when he was dying of cancer, he famously asked his wife to inject him with LSD on his deathbed. In this too, it seems that he was prescient. Several small trials suggest that ketamine alleviates depression, anxiety, and terminally ill cancer patients. And more recently, the first American study to use LSD in more than 40 years concluded that it too reduces anxiety in patients with life-threatening diseases. Stay tuned <laughs> after the break as we uh, talk to Julia again. Today, it is our pleasure to welcome back Julia Shetke, who is a therapist in Washington State. We spoke to her a couple months ago about spiritual trauma, and now she's back to talk to us about psychedelic-assisted therapy. Welcome, Julia. Yay! Hello! I'm so glad to be back. We are so glad to have yes. you back and talk about Yay. this amazing stuff that you are bringing for us. Thank you. Um, first note... Uh, yes. I loved your uh, George Clooney story. Thank you. Um, I happened to have, I bought five succulents myself at once and named them the Spice Girls. Oh, um, unfortunately, really like right? Um, unfortunately, three of them died and now I only have scary and posh spice left. Mm. I named them thinking that I would take better care of them, but that did not help. So now I only have scary and posh <laughs> left. <laughs> Yeah, succulents are tough. You have to like almost love them by not loving them. <laughs> I know. And still I killed them. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, listen, oh, all, all of the succulent plant owners listening to this understand the plight. Yes. I, yeah. I don't know how you kill a succulent, but apparently I do. Yeah. So you just, yeah. You just don't ever water it. <laughs> I, water unless I left like succulents dead. in my office like when pandemic happened for three months and one of them survived so like I don't know like what mm -hmm. I do wrong when I'm around them I feel like it's something that I like breathe. like our energy maybe yeah. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> oh boy <laughs> uh, yeah. okay now, now I'm done with plants Okay. Beautiful. Right, Julia, what can you tell us about psychedelic assisted therapy? 
Okay. Well, first I'm a psychedelic assisted therapist and I mainly work with clients who are using ketamine. Um, That is the legal substance up here in Washington at this point. They are working on psilocybin legality. It's technically legal in Oregon. They're working on it here in Washington as well. Um, But they don't have a real procedure yet on how to legally give psilocybin yet. So MAPS, which is the organization that um, helps train and inform people on how to use psychedelics has not really um, laid out how to do that yet. So they're working on the protocols and all those things for psilocybin. But meanwhile, ketamine has, has already set out that protocol on how to use that. So that's what I'm working with right now. Um, so I'm going to kind of talk from a ketamine-informed point of view. Um, but before I say that, I do want to recognize that through your history, um, that a lot of people of color were really affected through the past on um, psychedelics, especially on the war on drugs. And I would really like to take a moment and recognize that they were disproportionately disproportionately affected by um, the war on drugs. And I would really like to just acknowledge that and how the whitewashing of this history often happens. And so I'd like to just take a moment and um, really acknowledge that. Um, Yeah. Um, So one of the things that I, so ketamine was in the 1970s, uh, since the 1970s has been used as a general anesthetic and it allows for short-term memory loss for medical procedures. Um, And it also is used on animals, which is kind of the um, sticking point when it's out in the public. They're like, wait, isn't that used on horses? And you're like, yes, and also people. So I, um, I, people are always talking about how ketamine is out there, but then they're like, wait, no, that's a street drug or wait, no, that's used on horses. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. And also it can be used in a therapeutic sense. So um, then they started studying how ketamine can influence and rewire, reroute and bypass neurons that can be affected by PTSD or treatment resistant depression. So they started working on studies. And in 2019, the nasal spray, Spravato, has was approved to be in clinics and doctor's office for treatment resistant depression. And now there are options to do sublingual, which is under your tongue, ketamine at home, which is really interesting. So people, the the professionals will be on your computer and you get them mailed to you one, one dose at a time, which I find really interesting. So people can yeah. do this even at home, which is so interesting to me. Yeah, definitely a sign of our times as well. I mean, that kind of access, that's so neat. 
Right, and you wonder if it's part of the pandemic or whether that would have happened before. Mm-hmm. Not really sure. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I find that super interesting. That's kind of a little bit of Absolutely. the ketamine. Okay, that's that. I'm so glad you mentioned that about like oh the horse tranquilizer. I there's there's so much. And like you mentioned too, I mean, the war on drugs, like poor black communities and working class black communities were subjected to during the eighties and early nineties. And like how much just opinion we have on things because of the way it's fed to us, because our education on it, typically from like more privileged groups is what we see in the news and what, you know, is kind of fed to us intentionally (laughs) to make us have certain feelings and views and thoughts on things. And really like noticing how, uh, yeah, I mean, even like when I worked in addiction, even folks that were, you know, dealing with some, like struggling with addiction with some, like, you know, substances that were, that we hold up there that are the highest to break the addiction from, there was still this like, oh, I don't touch ketamine. Like it, right. like even, even in the community of recovery in that, in my time there, I realized that there was even even um, some negative views about it from folks there. Um, For sure, yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah, and people are like, um, a lot of people in the community are very biased to it because they're like, oh, you're going to go down the K-hole, you're going to do street drugs, yeah. and that's supposed to make you feel better. And you're like, well, it's not quite the same and it's controlled, and it's in a doctor's office, you get a certain dose of therapeutic, you're monitored, and it's actually been studied. And you have to to meet certain criteria in only to access this, you have to fail, fail in quotes, um, two antidepressants Mm -hmm. to be able to access this medication. Um, Some ERs are even giving it to you if you have um, very serious suicidal thoughts. And it's been shown to reduce suicidal thoughts immediately. And so people can get to work in therapy like that. And it's been so helpful. And so the stigma of it is really difficult out on the outside um, because Mm -hmm because people are questioning whether or not that's something for them when it's so useful. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what happens neurologically when it's, when it's taken to make suicidal thoughts go away or to make symptoms reduce? Yeah. So it works on your brain to just go in, like, for example, you use the spravato, it goes in and it, it attacks those neurons and moves them around or it bypasses those neurons that are um, around that kind of rewire when you have PTSD or when you Mm -hmm. have severe depression and it can either rewire those or go around them or reroute them. So it can completely either numb them too, so you can get into work in therapy um, or just move around depression, you know, reframing and, and be very helpful to be able to get to work. 
And it's been significantly helpful, especially for people who are in talk therapy at the same time, Mm -hmm. because they're able to calm those feelings of anxiety and suicidal ideation and also bring people up a little bit from depression and that treatment resistant depression as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. That's incredible. It, it sounds a little bit like EMDR, you know, I like it's a fast acting EMDR, like it just makes those connections for you in your brain and clears your fog more quickly. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they've noticed too that ketamines is associated with a decrease of comorbid depression symptoms. So Um, PTSD often presents with negative thinking and the inability to feel pleasure and often major depressive disorder is comorbid with PTSD. So having something that works on many different things is super helpful as well with ketamine. Mm -hmm. It's also like making me think of when, you know, working with people with negative core beliefs, like how resistant that is because it's like literally rewiring brains. And like, I'm, I'm working with clients on it now and it's going to take a really long time um, because it's just so, it's like you're sanding a piece of wood. Like you gotta just keep going. There's big scratches in there. You gotta just, yeah. Yeah, for clients who have been stagnant for a really long time and they haven't been able to make a breakthrough, a lot of them can access ketamine and have that kind of cog that's been stuck I'm doing mm. so many visual things in my hands that nobody can see. Um, <laughs> I appreciate helping me yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have my hands so much in, in tele- telehealth all, so. all the listeners need to know is that Joanna and I are really getting it yeah <laughs> <laughs> but there's like a cog that can be stuck and there's no way to get it unstuck for some people, it's just there's yeah, they just need something to get that grease in there to move it. And so a, lo- a lot of clients can really benefit from ketamine where it's just like, oh, OK, now I can get moving again. Mm-hmm. And it's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Like now we have that leverage. I always talk about, I'm like, this is like, we're turning a huge block of stone together. Like it's going to take a long time, but it, it's just amazing that there's something out there that can just kind of help with that momentum. Yeah. Um, so would you like to talk uh, about kind of like what I do with clients? Yes. And- yes. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I didn't know if you wanted to move on. I'm so excited. No, yeah. This is, this is okay. a free form interview. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. So um, when I work with clients currently, I am working with them before they take ketamine and then afterwards. I'm trained to work with them as well during the ketamine. So I'll talk about what that looks like. But right now I'm doing before and after. So what we do beforehand, a client comes to me and we have the telehealth session and we talk about set and setting. So the set is the mindset. So the state of mind, their mood, their attitudes, their concerns, and then their beliefs about psychedelic medicine and expectations is what we're talking about a lot there. Um, so we talk about the, what they're going to focus on, what they're hoping to get out of their experience, 
um, talking about their goals and then talking about how they want to, um, any of their concerns that they might have about the medicine they're about to take, we process all of that so that their mood and their beliefs are, are feeling good before they go in to their psychedelic experience. Because if they have any worries or anything like that, it's going to stay in their brain and then they're not able to just kind of let go and be in their experience. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the other part is the setting. So we talk a lot about what kind of space do you need for ketamine? If they're doing it at home because they have the sublingual male, then they're talking about how do you want your space to be? We usually talk about something cozy that's not cluttered, having music, having eye masks, and then also having, you know, a journal nearby, or if they do art, having their art nearby. So if they want to do some art or journaling afterwards, that it's all set up for them. So they don't need to like dig for things afterwards. Yeah. Um, if they're doing it in a clinic, then I um, advise them to get some like noise canceling headphones and then um, also uh, bring an eye mask as well, because sometimes there's a lot of people doing it at the same time. So making sure that they can create their own world to be separate from everybody else. So that's mm. the set and setting. Because um, there's a lot of different environments people can use ketamine in um, as far as uh, within a legal sense. And so there's either, um, there's IV, you can get it in an IV, you can get the nasal spray, or you can get it under the tongue. So there's three different methods that you can have um, the ketamine. And if it's the nasal spray or the IV, it's done in a clinic. So you need to go to some place and then they monitor you for two hours afterwards before mm -hmm. you can go home. Um, and then, so afterwards is integration. So they come and visit me again afterwards, um, usually a couple of days after. And we talk about um, their experience how it can be integrated into their lives. How has your journey changed the way that you view yourself? How has this impacted your social connections? And then what kind of impact has this had on your self-talk? Uh, what, what has this changed about you? And then also when you go into your next session, because usually they have multiple sessions, what are you hoping to bring forward and loop back in to the next session? Okay. So there's, there's this kind of continuation that, or that's continuity, I guess, that clients who maybe have been in therapy can find a little comforting and familiar. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about like folks that may come in with what we were talking about with that, like internalized idea about it. How are they, like, how do you give them psychoeducation about it? And how do you, how do they react and how does their mind change, I guess, over time as it's effective? So those who have kind of a negative view of yeah. psychedelics. Yeah. yeah. So we talk a lot about the history, kind of what you guys went over. And then also about um, what the experience will be like. Um, I'm thankful because I've had my own experience with ketamine. 
Um, so mm-hmm. I'm able to share what my experience was. Um, I've had the nasal spray myself. So being able to go, okay, this is what that's like. This is what mm-hmm. you may experience. And so being able to kind of talk in generalities of like, this might be, you might see this, you might feel this, you might experience this. And then they can ask lots of questions about it. Um, and then kind of embracing the unknown and you know, helping them know like, yes, this is gonna be a new experience. You can embrace that, but also making sure that they know that they can bring items that are familiar to them and remind them they can always open their eyes. Someone will always be with them they are never alone, so they can always ground and be okay. Mm-hmm. That's something to remind them of. Yeah, that is wonderful. I yeah. I always find it so helpful to disclose like my own experience too. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad that you have that for them. Yeah, um, I think it's really important in this case. Like I'm very careful about self disclosure. But here where there are um, really big unknowns, this is a good place for self-disclosure where I can say, okay, this is something that I do have experience in. It's a very big outlier where I can say, okay, this is something that I do have experience with. I can say, okay, I've been there. I understand that fear of that unknown. And I can say, yes, I I understand this feeling. So this is a space that I feel really comfortable disclosing in. Yeah. What is it like when you're there during the therapy? So when we're there, we talk about a couple of things. One, we ask them about safe touch and we tell them about safe touch. So we explain what we won't do, what we can do, and we ask them what we should do. Um, so we always are very careful about that. When they ask us to hold their hand, we always say, okay, I'm going to hold your hand now. So we're always like, they ask us, and then we tell them that's what we're going to do. So we're always communicating with them. Um, when I uh, When I would be in the room, I would journal everything that they're saying. Uh, I write down what song's playing while they're saying it so we can connect those things. So when they come to integration at the end and they're like, oh, I remember, you know, this, I don't remember what was happening. And I'm like, okay, well, at this time you said this and this was playing and I can bring up the song. So then they can maybe connect it back and go, oh, I remember I saw this and I felt this while this was playing. So we can connect it all together. So I'm always a scribe and then I can change the music as they ask me to or get them water or just sit and be there so they know that they're not alone and that I'm their therapist as well. So I know their history. I can always be safe with them. Yeah. I'm also interested about the music. Is that 
things that the client brings in for themselves or is that, is that music that you have there? Both. Okay. So a client can bring in their own music or I can prepare music for them. Um, I have a lot of playlists, so I, I name them, uh, I see colors, I see a mix or I see furniture, which is random. Um, <laughs> because, um, one of, uh, one of, uh, the people said that they only see colors when they listen to this playlist. So I named it, I see colors, and then there's a mix of them. And then one of uh, the people said that they saw flying chairs with one of, with the last list. So I named it, I see furniture, but it's just a mix of flow, a mix of them. And then like more upbeat kind of wild stuff. So it's, a mix of those three um, but clients can bring in their own music as well we try to do it without words so they're not paying attention to English they're all kind of musical just straight musical so they don't like get clicked into their cognitive brain when they're on ketamine no what are, what are the specifics around deciding dosage I, I mean just with my own recreational and personal experience with psychedelics it can go ways right so so how do you decide like how much a client takes and then is there a certain point that they decide to take more how does that go there's different prescribed dosages and that's actually not something I touch that is all a medical provider so not me um (laughs) which I'm very thankful for um there are two different dosages. I know the higher dosage for the nasal spray is 86. And I want to say the lower one is maybe 56. Um, so they, they prescribe this lower dosage for a while and then they move up. Um, so it just depends on which dosage the provider prescribes. And I believe it's the same. Um, it's a jump on the IV as well. It progresses up. I'm, I'm still more interested in the music has just, just because we're both music therapists. So I was like, Ooh, ooh, ooh. I mean, it's really interesting. Like I create playlists for doing like music and art together. Uh And those are all, you know, no lyrics, just like mood music. It's just, so I guess I'm just like drawing the parallel between like the parts of your brain that, that you want to affect during like art and music therapy versus versus ketamine therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I started with, um, so I trained with the Polaris insight center and I used a lot of their playlists at first and kind of got a feel for what theirs were like. And then I based them off of there. I used a lot of like East forest and, um, bioneural beats and, um, a lot of those based, um, so they're they're very similar in kind of the undertone of those different waves. They're trying to keep the different kind of brain waves on each playlist to kind of access different parts of the brain. So that's kind of what I tried to do is kind of step it up each each playlist. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Approved. Can we <laughs> talk can we talk about something that might be, you know, a 
a bit of a bummer on this and like how do insurance companies do this so what's happening is um i am paid as a therapist i'm just doing therapy work and then the medical procedures are paid by the nurse practitioner so it's just separate so there's a medical appointment and then there's a therapy appointment Oh, nice. And you had mentioned that sometimes they have to do a couple antidepressants before something else. And that's in the insurance company, I guess, dictating that. Yeah. The insurance company will not cover Spervato specifically unless you have done two antidepressants for how long? I think it's like you have to meet the actual therapeutic dose of two antidepressants for the significant time, whatever that is. Yeah. It's like six Uh, months with two of them. My God. I think so. Like six weeks. It could be a year. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That didn't work. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's intense. Um, Yeah. Or an oral depressant that to combat major depressive episodes with suicidal thoughts. So those are the two, okay. the two um, ways you can access ketamine. In your professional opinion, obviously everybody's different, but do you think that that order is necessary or do you think it may be okay? No, I'm shaking <laughs> walk, my head Walk us now. through that head shake. Yeah, walk us through uh, that. Um. <laughs> well, I think that there are, you know what, I'm thinking of, uh, past client loads and people mm-hmm. in general. Um, there are people that are severe enough with their PTSD that I think they should automatically access this. I don't think they should jump. I hmm, where I'm going to try not to soapbox this. I well, also you're welcome to soapbox. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to soapbox. This. I'll, I'll bring the box to you. Yes. Okay, here's my box. Um. <laughs> The soapbox is this. The soapbox is this. I feel that there's too many gatekeepers for so many things when it comes to mental health. When to health in general, but let's talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at people who have severe PTSD, by the time they come to a therapist, it's bold. It's bold to come to a therapist in general. And a lot of these people that are coming to us have been not in a therapy room ever. And they come to us with severe PTSD, severe depression. And I don't feel that they should have to gatekeep that. Let's give them what they need. And if that means that they are getting a letter from us that says, these people severely need ketamine to be stable and be able to move through their their PTSD or their major depression so that they can even show up in our room. That should be enough. That's my my soapbox. (laughs) That's the perfect, perfect soapbox. Yeah, I, I mean, the reason that things are not accessible mostly, especially, I mean, and like we said, both 
both body health care and mental health care are because insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies like to like to make money. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we will, our clients and ourselves obviously will continue to suffer with that. Uh, but having, having these options be there is like so revolutionary and so wonderful, but it would be awesome. It would yeah. be awesome if they were able to get there more quickly. I had clients Not just awesome, but it, you know, it's their rights. It's their yeah. right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've had clients take out loans to be able to get yeah. ketamine and I feel that's mm-hmm. outrageous. Outrageous. Yeah. Every, every time I hear, every time I see that someone has like a kick, a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe for not Kickstarter a GoFundMe for a medical procedure or when I hear about donating money to children's hospitals, I'm like, no, I mean, I sh- like, we shouldn't have to do that. We should have, this should be here for us already. And like having, having universal healthcare is not a, it's not this like lofty, it shouldn't be a lofty privilege. Mm-mm, mm-mm. It should be something that we just ascertain. Yeah. A human right. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, basically. Yeah. yeah. And what, what's interesting, too, is when you look at kind of the studies, which I spent some time diving into to prepare for this, we're talking about 60 to 70 people, 70 percent of people respond positively to ketamine when you're looking at that. And it's just like, how can you ignore that? And, and these are people that are at their lap, like they're one of their last things that they're trying, right? Like similar to TMS, like, you know, we've tried every antidepressant, we've tried all these forms of therapy and nothing is effective. Right. And maybe there's further trauma from trying all of these things that have been ineffective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It really made me think of TMS and like I had had clients who, you know, were on Medicaid and couldn't get TMS, even though that's what their doctor recommended. Like they clearly had, you know, they, they clearly needed it, but just like how long it takes for regulators or whoever to say, yeah, it's okay. is like, this is someone's life. They don't, you know, every day is, is a struggle. Yeah, for our listeners, TMS is uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a non-invasive procedure that uses magnetic fields to stimulate nerve cells in the brain. And it imp- it's made because it improves symptoms of depression. So similar to what Julie is talking about with folks going to a clinic. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is, you know, it's also especially effective for treatment resistant depression, which is like, that is one of the hardest i mean i can't imagine what it what it is like to live with that no no and a lot of very frequent treatment or used to be really easier my god today used to be a much more common treatment for that was ect and i mean that is also like a last last uh resort for some people but also like a super help for some people Especially with like bipolar Super. depression. Yeah, it's like it's a lifesaver. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And Why you know, I, I want to like oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, please. Why are some of these kind of last resort treatments so hard to access? Because these treatments are for the most severe cases of things, and those should be the easiest to access. 
for the people who need it because those are the people who need them the most. Why are those so hard to access? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, same answer for all of those questions is it's capitalism. Yeah, we, was just all, we want you money, to spend money, all money, of money, your money. money. We want all the money to be spent on this. And then when, by the time you do get this treatment, you're also spending money on this. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand That's what I was gonna like, say, is making like, sure things are safe. But like when there mm-hmm. are, you know, studies that say this is safe, it's just like, oh, you just don't, don't want to stop getting money for all the, the medication. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that in this, this episode with, you know, with the subject matter, we're not going to have like a lighthearted, like, oh, well, you know, everything's going to be, cause it's, I mean, it's, it's not, we, we have all these amazing treatment methods. We have amazing therapists like Julia, you know, across the country, around the world, helping to facilitate this for the, for the folks that, you know, are able to show up and do it or, and, you know, thankfully able to do it at home, which is so good. And we can feel, we can feel grateful for that. We can also, um, in a way that's possible, you know, advocate for universal healthcare. We can advocate for affordable healthcare. So yeah, you heard it first. <laughs> you heard it here first. Let's start advocating for, you know, accessible healthcare for people um, in any way you can do that. Yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> in every state as well, not states. In every state as well. Yeah. I don't even know PA's laws actually. Why don't, why don't y'all discuss and I'll look that up. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just like, I, I think this is some of the frustrations that we come up against in like the mental health field too, that things are like regulated by state. And then it's like, people don't live by their own, like, I don't know. I mean, I may be getting on a different soapbox in a different room, but um, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. we can just uh, stall for a second while Sarah looks that up and talk about like co-packs and how we can't serve everyone everywhere. Like people in, let's say, Idaho who need psychedelic assist therapists and there isn't anyone in Idaho, they can't access me because there's no reciprocity here. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of like I am, I am trained and they could see me, but they can't because there's no, yeah. Yeah. And it just, I mean, it's like, how traumatic is it if someone moves, you know, like, I mean, even think of people like active duty members, they're moving all the time and it's not even their choice. And just to have to switch therapists every six months, every year, like, wild so pa is currently uh moving through legislation for mushroom i hate magic mushrooms that name right so psychedelic mushrooms and cyclocybin psilocybin um to be legalized here psilocybin to be legalized here it is doesn't look like it is yet yeah yeah i know that there is ketamine assisted therapy in pennsylvania um Awesome. Yeah. Hmm. Just because I worked at a facility that had it. So that's how it happened. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, Your your old place was also also was one of the only places in the area that had uh, ECT. Yeah. And TMS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They had a lot to offer there. And like how helpful I just saw like the 
just the relief on people's faces that we have more options than these things that haven't been working for me. Yeah. And folks that maybe don't want to take, I mean, to each their own people that don't want to take a medication every day. Um, also, I mean, that can like, that can, that can do a lot to your body over time. It is wonderful what you trade symptoms and quality of life, but that's not always people's choice. Um, yeah. Option options are what we have moving up what we do have control over is to move away from the mindset that all of this stuff is a privilege not that it's a right Mm. um like i remember my driver's ed yeah thank you (laughs) my driver's ed teacher that's like the first thing they tell you is driving is a privilege and not a right well in the united states there is no uh public transportation so it's absolutely a right for me to be able to drive like so whatever that's just a thought i had the other day but all of these things that we pretend to say that they're privileges because we like something is, you know, being fed to us, as we mentioned earlier, by people that maybe don't us, want us to be as empowered. Mm-hmm. We are made to think that all of these things that could help make our lives better are, you know, something we have to earn and not just a basic right. It, yeah. I mean, yeah, like my own, when I was going through a mental health crisis, I had to pay. And luckily, I had the money to pay to see a psychiatrist in person. Mm-hmm within a week because I had that money and like it's so hard to talk with clients and be like yeah it's gonna take a while because like it's it's not it it's being treated as a privilege yeah yeah or you need to go see another therapist because the only psychiatrist you can find is (laughs) attached to a therapy yeah and you have to do two therapy intakes and those are going to be a month apart Uh, and yeah yeah Oh, I can feel us revving up. I'm revved. So we're just jumping on soapboxes. We're just (laughs) well. I I can't even like talk about the fact that like when we're talking about psychedelic assisted therapy and the access, and when we're talking about the people who need it the most, we're talking about marginalized people, and Mm -hmm. how you know we can all, you know, talk and talk about how marginalized people uh, cannot access this they don't have health care they don't have transportation mm-hmm. they may not even have a home mm-hmm. yeah i mean at the end of the day all of these issues are affecting marginalized communities in in spades more than they're affecting the people that even have the knowledge of i mean obviously we, like we have access to all this research and we have access to all this education but we're also very aware of folks that are unable to get some of the stuff that are in very great need. And and also like a system that, you know, pushes against providers being paid for what they need to the point where they have to then go to private pay because they can't afford to keep doing the things they're doing without mm-hmm. charging as much as they charge out of pocket because like insurance companies, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping. I'm, I'm on another soapbox here. <laughs> No, insurance companies are insurance. (laughs) Insurance companies are a side effect of of our economic system. Because I hate saying the word, and and they're not good. They're not good. They aren't great or good. We needed another whole episode about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fine for me. Part three. We can do as many parts (laughs) as as we need. (laughs) Oh, for love of God. All right. Let. I am not, I, okay. I know I said that I don't want us to put a positive spin on this because it is all very true, 
<laughs> but do you have any pieces of success or hope about this treatment that just makes you feel like jazzed and fired yes. up to be doing it? Okay. I sure do. Um, I have a friend of mine who couldn't speak. They were so depressed. And they went to Academy and they did this bravado. And now they are doing amazing at life. They just graduated from doing ketamine about a year later, maybe a little longer. Um, but immediately after starting it, they were able to like function in life. And no joke, couldn't speak. They were so depressed. And that right there tells you the power of ketamine. And that's miraculous. And it kind of shows you like, what it can do. Hmm. Yeah. I'm so happy for this friend. I'm so happy for you to yeah. see that. It was amazing. It's amazing. And I, I just deeply care about her. And I, I think that that's incredible. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, that did it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I think it was, I think it was yeah. okay to end on a positive. Podcast yeah. tears. Yes. <laughs> no big deal. No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> is there any other info you think would be good for us to have? Are there any resources for maybe folks that are still like, eh, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not sold. Yeah. Um, I will definitely share some that you can put in the link doobly doos, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's exactly so what they're called. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I think the best way to learn about this is to go to this Bravado website. So it's bravado.com, which again, we'll put in the doobly-doos. But um, (laughs) um, I think doing your own research and not getting caught up in the stigma of special K or you know, magic mushrooms, or this is illegal. Um, Because yes, there are some illegal street drugs that are now being studied for their very useful mental health treatment. It's just to be aware that they are controlled, Mm -hmm. they are proper dosage, and that they are monitored by medical professionals and that's a very big difference than using them on the street willy-nilly and just to keep an open mind um and to yeah i mean just keep an open mind and really do your research about it um and i'm not saying research like on you know some random website like going to the uh, you know fda or the dea or Spervato, or like the places that are actually doing research on this. Maps, for example. Yeah. Maps. So you don't want me to learn from like a Reddit comment section. You want me to not a Reddit from, from no. Spervato. No. No. <laughs> good to Those know. are only good for some things. <laughs> They're really useful for yes. a lot of things, yeah. but not mm-hmm. for unstudied <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. Joanna, should we do a uh, would you rather? Um, 
yeah, I'm I <laughs> kind of thinking would Please. you rather have a free free healthcare or not? Um, but uh never mind. <laughs> a little salty about uh, it. Um, okay. Yes, let's do a would you rather. We'll end this. Uh <laughs> Would you rather lose every time you play a game or have no one want to play against you? Oh, I would rather lose every time I play a game. I like friends. Yeah. Yeah, I'll pick that one too. I, I don't like, I, I hate, I think I lose every time I play Would You Rather. <laughs> Can you lose at that? I hate every I think if you, I think if you refuse so to answer, so. then yes, you lose. I don't know. These are also like Uno <laughs> cards as well. So they have like numbers and like skips on them. <laughs> I don't know how you're supposed to actually play nice. it, but um what you what about oh, my on? What about you? I mean, I used to be ultra competitive, so I just want to say back in the day, I would have probably chosen to not have anyone play against me, but now I, mm-hmm. I appreciate people around me. So I'm gonna go with the first one, which I already forgot Heck the yeah. wording for. So Heck yeah. Yep, 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 yep. All right. Well, Julia, thank you so much for joining us again. It seems like we're going to have to have you on for a third time to discuss <laughs> shop around insurance and pharmaceutical companies. And I am okay with that, but it's always a pleasure. Um, where can people find you on the internet and are you taking clients? And yeah, tell us, tell us what you want us yeah. to spread. You can find me on Instagram at breathe mental health. And I am taking mm-hmm. clients. Um, they can find me on my website, www.breathementalhealth.com. And all that website has is um, my contact information is all there. So you can definitely find me there. Heck yeah. Well, best of luck with ketamine treatment. Yeah, thank you so much for educating us on this. I feel like I should have been taking notes the whole time, um, like in a good way. Well, you have the podcast. You can read it. We we can yeah. listen to it again. We do have that, thankfully. Yep. I'll I'll listen again and just take some notes. Just just be- it was just like sparking my note taking flame. I don't know what that is, but like Thank like you. when you have a notebook in front of you and you feel like you're actually giving therapy. I know that. <laughs> yes. Yep. All right. So. <laughs> All right. Thank you for Thank listening you. to the show. Be sure to subscribe slash rate slash review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Ah, you can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod or on Twitter at TNDPod1. One as in the number one. Or visit our website at TNDPodcast.com. If you would like the ability to vote on questions we ask our guests and so much more, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash TNDPodcast. This, pro- this episode is probably coming out after our bonus episode. Uh, for April but if you'd like to hear that head on over to our Patreon uh, and see what benefits you can get it's pretty cool also if you would love to be interviewed on this show consider this your uh, message call to action call to action to just email us we are open we would love to speak with you um, yeah we love to talk so we love to talk <laughs> about things therapy also about other things so um you can (laughs) you can email us at therapists next door at gmail.com that's therapists plural next door at gmail.com sarah do you have anything to plug yeah yeah i'm gonna double plug that patreon because you know you know we we need support while we put out this awesome awesome content no 
awesome content. I thought you also, said you can OSM find me. for a second. I was like, what is OSM? Oh, is some content. Oh, some content. Yeah, Patreon. Help us out. You know, we we want to help you out. Help us out. Scratch our backs. I have an itch on my back. Find me on Instagram at teletherapywithsarah.com. Website is teletherapywithsarah.com. Uh, bi-weekly blog posts on professional millennials from working class backgrounds and exploited therapist coaching, accepting clients for both. Come on in. Um, I think that's it, Joanna. Do you have yeah. anything? To uh, yeah, you can find me at orianatherapy.com. I'm still accepting new clients now, but that window is probably going to end pretty soon just so that mm-hmm. both I and you have time to, uh, you know, build a therapeutic relationship before I go on maternity leave. So consider this your call to action. If you're like, uh, Hey, I don't know. Consider it now. Um, get off that fence. Yep. Yes. You're on the fence. Anyway. Until next time. We are your therapists. Next Next door. door. I like that. Good. Bye.